the middle of a series called Real Mature, and we dove into this topic uh, last week. If you were with us last week, you caught uh, kind of the launch into this. If not, I'll, I'll catch you up a little bit, but you may want to check in. Uh, you can follow online, uh, ccpwallop.com, and, uh, and track with us there, CC for Celebration Center, then you know where you live, and then .com. So, so it's easy to find. Uh, but uh, we, t- we started this conversation about becoming mature and how uh, we recognize there's certain points in life when things are operating at peak capacity. And we played a game last week uh, trying to guess when you were at peak capacity for different, uh, different things in life. And uh, my favorite one was that uh, when you're at peak capacity for just being happy with your physical body, and it was age 73. And uh, I just thought that was hilarious. Uh, that's when we're finally okay with our own skin. Uh, and and uh, I thought that was amazing. But, but uh, we're diving into this, uh, this conversation about how do we know if we're growing? How do we know if we're moving towards uh, Jesus or not. And, and the, the first step of that uh, had to do with just intimacy and relationship with Jesus and understanding that what Jesus called us to was a relationship of following him, getting to know him, following him. And, and if you weren't here last week, I, I just want you to catch this piece because it sets the whole foundation of what we're talking about today, that no matter where you're at today, no matter where your background is, you can take a step towards moving towards Jesus. And what's beautiful about the church is this incredible symmetry that no matter if you're just getting started on your journey, if you're just starting to ask questions and figure it out, or if you're a veteran and you've been walking with Jesus forever, when we're all moving in the same direction, there's this beautiful picture of the potential and the possibility of the church. And, uh, and so the kind of the landing zone of, of last week was this principle, this idea that you may not know everything that you need to know when you start walking with Jesus, and that's okay. You may not even actually believe it 100%. Jesus never said, once you believe everything I'm saying, then come follow me. He simply said, wherever you're at in this moment, come and follow me. And the tension that we kind of landed on in that is that there's really nothing in your life that you started doing that you were 100% before you took some steps in that direction the job, the career, the thing you're doing with your life right now, you weren't 100% that this was gonna work out before you took some steps in that direction, but you took some steps and now you're there. Some of the relationships you're in right now, you weren't 100%. As a matter of fact, my contention is probably at the altar, married folks, you weren't 100% that this was gonna go. You were hopeful, you were believing, you might've even been 99.99%, but there was a .001 where you were like, I'm not so sure, but you didn't get before that person and before your friends and say, uh, 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 I take you to be my 99.99% spouse. You just dove in and you started walking in that direction and, and building uh, the intimacy of that relationship. And now you're in and Jesus in many ways invites us into that same uh, conversation. He says, hey, come and just start walking with me. And so last week we talked about that, but I told you I would balance it this week by talking about the fact that just because Jesus invites us to start walking with him, no matter what we believe, doesn't mean he doesn't care what we believe. Doesn't mean that it doesn't matter what we believe or what we know or how we think about things. It doesn't mean that none of those things are important. It just means that they're not prerequisites for beginning to walk with Jesus. But he wants us to be in a relationship with him. And you know what's funny is the world has changed in how we define a relationship. The world has changed. I have, I, I had to look it up, and this is not bragging. This may be humble to you or this may be over the top. I have 1,159 friends on Facebook now. 
I know about 100 people in real life that I can like catch their name, right? So I'm like plus a thousand on Facebook of people that I have relationship with, right? The definition of relationship has changed. You used to only identify relationships as people you were related to or people you saw on a regular basis. But the definition of relationship has changed. And so it's interesting as we talk about Jesus wanting to have and be in a relationship with him, with him that we don't always mean the same thing when we talk about relationship. And some of us, I love uh, that video, some of us have a, a, a casual, techie relationship. We're a big fan of the Bible. We're a big fan of Jesus, but we don't have a relationship and we don't have any clue what he's actually like or what he actually says or who he is. And this is why the scripture becomes so incredibly important for us. Because here's the thing about relationships. Relationships are dynamic. You're either growing closer or you're growing further apart. Relationships are moving targets. They're dynamic. They're not static. You don't just click friend, like, agree, and then you're in a relationship. That's not the end. You either are moving closer or you're moving apart. If you've been in any long-term relationships, you know this. There's ebbs and flows. And based on the time you spend together, the intimacy that you have, the genuine conversation, the trust, you're either moving, come on now, closer together or you're stepping farther and farther apart. And as we talked last week about how do we follow this invitation that Jesus gave us to follow, how do we know if we're moving in that direction because we want to be developing intimacy and closeness with Jesus, but we can't just depend on the past. Some of us in our relationship with Jesus, can we just talk to church people for a minute? In our relationship with Jesus, it had a moment. It had an apex moment where we said, I'm now in a relationship with Jesus. And that was the closest you've ever been to Jesus in your whole life. That moment, that step. Because since then you haven't walked in a direction of personal relationship with him. For some of you, you've done that for some season and then you've walked back. And if you were to, if I were to just ask you, do you feel like you're growing closer with God right now? Or do you feel like you're growing farther apart? There'd probably be some, if you were honest with me, there'd be some tension for some of us in the room. And we'd be asking questions. How do we know if we're growing? How do we know if we're moving forward? How do we know if this relationship is actually developing? And so a big part of that is knowing who he is and what he's like. It's hard to be in a relationship with someone if you don't really know what they're like. And Facebook and Instachat and Snapgram and all that stuff and all those things have taught us that we can meet an ambassador, come on now, of somebody, and we can kind of know what they're like without actually ever really knowing what they're like. And if you don't really know what someone's like, then how do you have an actual authentic relationship with them? And so oftentimes we come to this idea of a relationship with God, a relationship with Jesus, and we're just taking Snapchats of who he is and what he's like. We're taking images of who he is and what he's like, and it's not authentic and it's not who he is. So how do we know what we believe and how do we know who he is and how do we know what he's like? And the greatest tool that he gives us is his word. He tells us who he is and what he's like. He's actually protected for generations a revealing of his identity, of his character, of his personhood, who he is and what he is like. And that is why the Bible is so important. I love conversations about is the Bible even important? Do we even need the Bible? Because I don't believe that we worship the Father, the Son, and the Holy Scriptures. 
right? That's not, the, that's, not the, that's not the triune nature of God. It's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But we have this incredible tool, this incredible revealing story of God's interaction with mankind through all of history. And he says, this is who I am, and this is who I, what I am like. And so it becomes incredibly important and powerful to, to us. We see actually contained the words of God. And you think, well, how important are the words of God? Well, when God speaks, crazy things happen, like things are created. He says things like, let there be light, and there's light. He says things like, let there be an expanse between the day and the, and, and the night. He, he, he literally says, I'm gonna take this and breathe life into you, and I'm gonna call you man. And things are created when he speaks. So how important is it if we have contained in this book his words that we know what in the world he says? It creates things. It has power. It has authority. It's absolutely important for our lives. And here's the thing. Biblical knowledge is about knowing the truth. The truth of who God is, the truth of his interaction with mankind, the truth of his story of, uh, uh, of being with all of mankind. And here's what tension begins to happen in us when we don't actually know the truth. We don't really know what God's like. We don't really know who he is. We're fans of God, but we don't know how he's interacted with the world. And it creates tension in us and it gives us the opportunity to really miss it. And so here's the thing. If we're ever gonna be spiritually mature, we have to start knowing some truth. And the truth that you can't, can't just be from me because you don't know if I'm telling you the truth. You've got to go to the source. If I just tell you about my friend all the time, you have a picture of my friend that has been filtered through me. But if you meet my friend, come on now, then you know him. You know what he's like and you have a relationship with him. And biblical knowledge is about knowing the truth. And here's the tension. It, if, if we're just really honest about it, we should all be asking questions like, is it true? You know, last summer and probably this summer again, I, I did a series called Will It Float? if you remember the Will It Float series. And I just said, these are questions or statements or things that people who say they're Jesus people believe. But let's throw them in the tank and see if they float. Let's see if it's actually true based on the character of God and the reality of this world that we live in. Is it actually true? And so often I think we find that as we are trying to mature and go on this uh, relationship with God, if we don't know what he's like, we don't know the answer to basic questions about life. And it takes us to tension. And so we should be asking, will it float? We should ask things when, when, when someone says something like, God wants me to be happy. We should go, hmm, does that float? Is that who God is? Is that what he's like? Is his highest goal for you happiness? Does he want happiness for you? Is happiness even on his, on his radar? Do we know? I think so, maybe. How about this? God wants me to be who I feel like I should be. Is that... Is that the nature of God? Is that who he is? Is that how we interact with God? Is that true? Does it float? I, biblical knowledge is about knowing truth. How about this one? Um, God wants my life to be fair. He wants me to be an agent of fairness and make sure that everything is fair. Is that true? Do I believe that? Do I call that as a core value? What do I think about God? How about this? Um, being a Christian, a follower of God, a follower of Jesus and in a relationship with Jesus means my life is going to go much easier now. <laughs> right? Some of you are laughing because that hasn't been your experience. 
Why am I bringing some of these tensions up? Some of them are obvious. Some of them make you tense. Some of you, you may go, I'm not really sure what God says about that or how he interacts with us based on that. I'm not sure how I feel about that. This is why biblical knowledge is so important because it's about knowing the truth. So let me ask you this question. What's the source of truth in your life? What's the source of truth in your life? Where do you go to when you need some truth? You go to the news, you go to encyclopedia, do you Google? Do you talk to an old wise mentor? What's the source of truth in your life? The reality is there's probably three points of, so- of sources of truth that you wrestle with in your life. One of those points of sources of truth and access points is the scripture is God, is his word. One of those might just be a, 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 a human, a person that you trust. Some other person's source of truth. One of it might just be yourself. Maybe you're the ultimate source of truth in your life. This is my truth and I'm just living in it. So there's a tension that we have. Somewhere we have to identify what is true and what is not true. What is God like and what is he not like? How does the world world really work? And what do I actually stand for and believe? And if you don't have a relationship with the word of God, if you don't know the character and the nature of God as is expressed in there, you're gonna really struggle to answer some of these questions questions about life and what's true. The reality is God's word is the source of truth in your life. If you're a follower of Jesus, if you are, uh, had said, yeah, you know what? I don't have all of the things figured out, but I'm going to go ahead and start on this relationship with you. I'm going to start walking in this way. Then God's word becomes the source of truth in your life. Let me take you on a little bit of a journey. I'm gonna walk you through a lot of scripture today, and so you might not be able to cheat and get ahead of me. If you wanna get to 1 Kings chapter 13, you can get ahead of me there, but I'm gonna be in a couple different places uh, before that. But what does Jesus really tell us about his word? What does the Bible tell us about his word? What does God tell us about his word? And I love this picture of Jesus. John chapter eight, it says, to the Jews who had believed him, he said, if you hold to my teaching, you're really my disciples or followers. You're really following me. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. How do you know the truth? You gotta hold to his teachings. How do you know his teachings? Oh, they're in his word. He says, if you're following me, you're gonna hold to my teachings. You're gonna follow the things I've taught you. And that's how you become a follower of me. And when you do that, you'll now know what is true. And that truth isn't to enslave you, limit you, lock you down. It's to bring freedom to your life. Because when I'm believing a lie and operating in that, I'm not free. I'm confused. I'm locked up. I'm tied up. He says, hey, you can know my words, and that truth will set you free. The author of Hebrews said it this way about the word of God. He said, for the word of God is living. It's active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing of the soul and the spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of your heart. He says, when you get into God's word, it starts challenging the way you think. Things that you've connected that shouldn't be connected, realities that you connected. I think God wants me to be happy. He wants me to be happy. He wants me to be happy. Mom, my world's not happy. Okay, how does this divide that? How does it help me figure that out? I think God wants me to to be me and just do whatever I want to do. And why wouldn't he want me to do whatever I want to do? And you get into his word and it's like, oh, I understand God's perspective on this now. It divides that. God's word helps me know his voice. And if I know his voice, then I know more about what God's like. 
And if I know what he's like, then I can be in a relationship with him. If I can be in a relationship with him, then I can follow him. And if I can follow him, Jesus says, then you'll know the truth. And if you know the truth, Jesus says, then you'll experience the most freedom you've ever experienced. It's powerful how that works. But it all falls apart if we don't know his word. It all falls apart if we don't know the, the reality of who he is and what he is like. As I was wrestling with this, I heard, I heard uh, uh, this story. Um, it's from the scriptures that I'm going to share with you. And, and it just, like, light bulb, it went off in, in my head. And, uh, and I was like, oh, this is, this is just so real. In 1 Kings chapter 13, there's this incredible story. And, and you know, I, I love giving you history and, and backstory because it's so important for how we contextualize what's going on in the Word of God. And so I don't know if sometimes you guys feel like you're in a history lesson when you're, when you're coming to church, but I, I just want to give you some truth and reality because I want you to understand that, that all of the things in this, in this Bible, all of the things, all the stories, these are humans who lived at real time, at real places and dealt with real things. They sweat, they ate food, they went to the bathroom, they had relationships, they fought, they loved, they slept, they were people. And God tells their story and they lived in a context and that time was different than other times. And, and uh, you know, they had some amenities. They had some things that were not amenities. They lived in civil governments and in relationship. And, and if you understand what their life was like, then you can see why God speaks the way he does to them to try to uh, make their narrative, make context in their situation. And so if you get into the book of, of First Kings and where we're at in the story, I won't give you a ton because of time, but you just have to catch Solomon's now passed away. And Solomon was like the last unifying king of Israel. All of Israel, all the tribes were united under his rule. They had prosperity. The temple finally got built. They had finally uh, uh, were under the kind of authority that they wanted to be in. They had a king. They had, it, it, it was like the structure was there. There was wealth. The Solomon Splendor is renowned, probably the most wealthy person to have ever lived in terms of just raw material, wealth, gold, and human resources. And that human resources is what got him messed up. In order to make alliances and allegiances with neighboring communities, um, he began to just marry and marry and marry uh, people. Um, he, he, like the numbers are staggering, but we're talking about 300 wives by the time he's done. 700 concubines that are just uh, uh, a part of his harem, essentially. And what ends up happening is this person who's God's appointed and called to lead his people has a divided heart. Being in a relationship with one person is hard. Times that by 300 and add a 700 other distractions and try to have a unified heart. And so Solomon's heart gets divided. And as his heart gets divided, his relationship with the Lord suffers and his leadership suffers and the unity of his people suffers. And at the end of his reign, uh, God's very kind to him. And because of his father, David, uh, allows him to kind of finish his life in peace. But there is trouble brewing. And the moment he dies, these rebel forces that have kind of uh, swelled against this, this cultural invasion that Solomon has tolerated begin to burst out. And the 12 tribes, there's basically 10 that are still operating as individuals. There's no longer unity in the people. And so different leaders are beginning to raise up to try to challenge for that leadership position out of Solomon's family, people from different tribes. And, and this begins kind of the narrative of what's happening in the book of Kings. And, and, uh, and we, we show up at uh, chapter 13. And at the end of chapter 12, we see this um, kind of horrific scene that you wouldn't understand if you haven't been reading the word of God. But, but this horrific scene happens where um, 
as a Jeroboam, he, uh, he, he doesn't want the people of God to worship out. He doesn't want them to go anywhere else to worship, but to stay here because he's afraid that he'll lose influence if they go somewhere else. And so instead of going to the temple to worship and doing the things that God's commanded, instead of obeying and honoring God's word, come on now, he's like, I'll just do a system that looks like what you would do there, but we'll do it here. I'll build my own altar. We'll have our own sacrifice. We'll do our own worship the way we want to do it. And here's the thing. If you don't know your history, you're doomed to repeat yourself, right? And very similar to kind of the sin of Aaron, uh, he's like, hey, we're just gonna manipulate God. We'll just make our own golden calf. We'll do our own system. We know God kind of works this way. And so we'll just kind of do it our own way. And that's the sin of Jeroboam. That's what's happening here. And because of this sin and rebellion that's in Jeroboam, because he's trying to control a group of people, saying, I'll tell you what God's okay with and not okay with. You don't have to talk to God. You don't have to hear from God. Just listen to me. And it'll look close enough to what looks right and looks true that you'll just kind of go with it. And I have the loudest voice, the microphone, and the influence, so I'll just manipulate this thing. Come on now. And you'll be obedient to me instead of to God, but it'll look like obedience to God. That's what's happening. So Jeroboam sets this entire table, and here comes the prophet the man of God in chapter 13, uh, and he shows up, and, uh, and, and I'll, I'll start at verse four. And it says, when King Jeroboam heard that the man of God, oh, he shows up, and he's crying out against Jeroboam. God sends a prophet in who he's like, he's like, hey, go let those people know that what Jeroboam's doing is manipulative. It's not my word. It's not my voice. It's not my plan. It looks like it. It has an affinity to the truth, but it is not the truth. And so King Jeroboam hears what the man of God has cried out against him at the altar of Bethel, the altar that he had made. And, and it says, he stretched out his hand from the altar and said, seize him. But the hand he stretched out, check this out, towards the man shriveled up so that he could not pull it back. He's trying to violate the will of God. And God's like, homie, don't play that. I dated myself, but some of you are with me, so I'm good. <laughs> Verse five, also the altar was split apart. So the altar just rends and its ashes poured out according to the sign given by the man of God and by the word of the Lord. So the man of God shows up and he's like, this is not how you're supposed to do it. And Jeroboam's like, seize him, uh-oh. And the altar just splits. This power encounter happens, verse six. said, so then the king said to the man of God, um, excuse me, pardon me. No, <laughs> he wimps out. Look, he goes, intercede with the Lord your God and pray for me that my hand will be restored. He goes, uh, this is not what I was hoping would happen. Mercy, mercy, right? That my hand would be restored. And look at this. So the man of God did intercede with the Lord and the king's hand was restored and became as it was before. How cool is that? There's so many layers there. Just one moment giving your heart back to God, restoration, healing, renewal. One moment of repentance and recognizing the authority of the word of God, restored, renewed, it's incredible. Mercy that God gives to someone who's literally violating his word. Incredible. See, you don't know what God's like if you don't get into his word. You get into the Old Testament and you're like, oh, he's just destroying cities. He's cruel. And you're looking, you read it and you're like, oh, he's not. He's compassionate. He's concerned. He's looking for people to turn. All right. It's just too, much, too good of stuff. All right. So the man of God interceded with the Lord and the king's hand was restored and became as it was before. Verse seven. So the king said to the man of God, hey, come home with me and have something to eat and I'll give you a gift. This is critical, check this out. But the man of God answered the king, even if you were to give me half your possessions, I wouldn't go with you, nor would I eat bread 
or drink water here. For I was commanded by the word of the Lord, you must not eat bread or drink water or return by the way you came. So he took another road and didn't return the way he had come to Bethel. So he's a prophet. He's hearing from God. He has the word of God. He hears the word of God. He knows the word of God. And the word of God tells him, go straighten Jeroboam out. Literally, because he's going to get shriveled. You're going to straighten him out. He goes, he straightens him out, but there's a contingency, an expectation from God. He says, I don't want you getting immersed in that culture. I don't want you getting enamored with the king's wealth and the king's possessions, and I want you to only be dependent on me. So don't accept any of the hospitality of the king when you're there. You have a mission, you have a job, go and do your job, honor the letter of what I am telling you to do. And he does, he says, I'm not gonna mess with that. Look what happens here, this is crazy. Now there was a certain old prophet who lived in Bethel. So he's already there, whose sons came and told him all that the man of God had done there that day. They also told their father what he had said to the king. And the father asked them, which way did he go? And his son showed him which road the man of God took uh, from Judah had taken. So he said to his sons, saddle the donkey for me. And when he had saddled the donkey for him, he mounted it and rode after the man of God. He found him sitting under an oak tree. And he said, are you the man of God who came from Judah? I am, he replied. So the prophet said to him, why don't you come here with me and eat? And the man of God said, remember, I cannot turn back. I cannot go with you. I cannot eat bread or drink water that came from this place. I've been told uh, by the word of the Lord, you must not eat bread or drink water or return by the way you've come. You came. And the old prophet answered, I too am a prophet as you are. And an angel said to me by the word of the Lord, bring him back with you to your house so that he may eat bread and drink water. But he was lying to him. He was lying to him. Verse 19, so the man of God returned with him and ate and drank in his house. And while they were sitting at the table, the word of the Lord came to the old prophet who had brought him back. And he cried out to the man of God who had come from Judah. This is what the Lord says. You've defied the word of the Lord and you've not kept the command that your Lord gave you. You came back and you ate bread and you drank water at the place where he told you not to eat and not to drink. Therefore, your body will not be buried in the tomb of your fathers. What? When the man of God had finished eating and drinking, the prophet who had brought him back saddled his donkey for him. And as he went on his way, a lion met him on the road and killed him. His body was thrown down on the road with both the donkey and lion standing beside him. Wait, what? This is a crazy story. This is an insane story. But you know what happens here? He knows the word of the Lord, but another person, this is what I want you to catch, another person who had some level of authority came to him and said, that's not the word of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. And he compromised what he knew. And he trusted somebody else to give him the word of the Lord instead of accessing the word of the Lord personally. And that person lied to him and it cost him everything. How important is it that you get into the word? How important is it that you know God's voice? How important is it that you know his story? How important is it that it's personal and relational to you? Would you have the courage to stand in front of an old, wizened, spiritual authority who said, this is the word of the Lord for you and say, that's not how God's spoken to me. That's not what he said to me. That's not what I read in his word. I can't just assent and give my uh, 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 life to something that's other or contrary than the word of God. How confident are you you could do that? He's deceived. You know, the enemy's been using that move since the beginning. We talk about this all the time. He uses the same moves. In the garden, Adam and Eve, 
the presence of God, fully experiencing his relationship and his voice. And you know all the enemy has to say? Did God really say that? Is that really what God said? That's all it took. And they were not confident in what God had really said. And the whole story breaks and all of creation is altered. Because they weren't confident in what God said. They, weren't, they didn't know the story. They didn't trust his voice. So an outside voice, speaking from some authority, makes a rational, manipulative argument. Says, did God really say that? Does God really feel that way? What ends up happening to us is, <laughs> as we struggle to know what God's like, if we don't actually know the story of his interaction with mankind, we start forming God into our image. We start making our values God's values. I really value this, God must value this. We start saying, there's no way God would have or could have, and he must only this or do that. But we, 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 we just try to tell the story in a way that makes sense to our conscience. But if we get into the word, then everything changes. If we start asking, did God really say? I mean, there's some pretty powerful things in here that God really said. Like he really said there's gonna be a flood. Can you imagine at that time? There's not gonna be a flood. Maybe a flood is like an emotional thing. Maybe it's like a flood of emotions, Maybe it's a flood of, of new thinking or new ideas. Maybe it's, you know, there's not going to be a real flood, only there is a real flood. He said things like, did, did God really say that if you, don't, if you don't paint with lamb's blood over every door, the angel of death is going to pass by and the firstborn of every family is going to die? I'm sure there were people who were like, ah, God wouldn't say that. He didn't really say that. Come on now. He didn't really say, we didn't have to paint with lamb's blood and, you know, that lamb's blood wasn't going to protect us and what different, God wouldn't, God didn't say that. It's probably more metaphorical. It probably is a, you know, a, 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 a some kind of a, a simile, a, some kind of a wordplay. And we're, there's a deeper story here of what God's doing. And, and, and no, God actually really said that's what was going to happen. And that's what he did. Did God really say that he so loved the world? that he sent his only and begotten son, that whoever believed in him wouldn't perish, but have ever, did God really say anyone could believe in him? Did God really say he loved this world? Did God really say that? Yeah, that's what he said. It becomes the story. Problem is we get back to will it floats and we don't really know what he says. And so we run into issues and we don't know what to do with the issues. And just be honest with you. These are the kind of conversations I have from time to time. Because people ask me, what do you believe about? And they give me whatever the current issue is that's on everybody's mind. Doesn't matter what the current issue is. It can be any hot, to hot topic, any politically charged agenda item. It can be, you know, I mean, it could be from abortion to marriage equality to you name it. I mean, just whatever it is. And they'll come and they'll say, well, what do you believe about this? And you know what my answer is? pull out this book. And I say, my, my opinion on that issue is formed from here. And so if you want to have a conversation about it, I'd love to have a conversation with you about it. But just so you know, I'm, my starting point is going to be, this is what God says about this. This is what he says about human life and the nature of marriage and the nature of whatever the thing is. This is what God says about it. So that's going to be my starting point as we walk into the conversation about what's true or not. 
and I've had conversations, I, I've, I've had this conversation, literally had this conversation, in this office, right over here. Well, I know the Bible says something about it, but I just don't believe that part. I've had that conversation. Those words have been spoken in my office as I'm having conversations with people. And I say, you know, that's okay. You don't have to believe everything to start walking with Jesus. You don't have to believe everything today. But I just want you to know that this is where I find my source of truth. And since this is where I find my source of truth, this is where I make my stand. This is how I think. This forms the way I think and the way I live. Here's the thing I just want you to catch. Half-truths, half-truths will ruin your life. They'll ruin your life. Half-truths will ruin your life. We are so easily victimized by half-truths. We so easily jump. I mean, come on. We can't. I never, I don't, the political world just isn't like useful for me in terms of uh, uh, talking about the kingdom of God. And so I don't even like going into these narratives, but you can't watch the news anymore. You can't. You have to have two screens going and listening to completely different takes on the same news item. And then somehow from that place, try to form, it's impossible to watch the news anymore. Half truths will ruin your life. If you buy into that, I mean, we know people that believed half truths and destroyed their lives made life-changing, altering decisions with only half the truth. Yep. Can I just be honest with you? This is mean to say it this way, but I'm just going to say it. because You can take this book, and you can find so many half-truth statements out of context. Yep. You can justify any behavior you want to justify. Yep. You want to get a divorce, you can find a way to get yourself a divorce. You want to... Force someone to stay with you, you can find a way to force someone to stay with you. You want to not give a penny to the kingdom, you can find a way to not give a penny to the kingdom. You want to sell everything you have and give it to the kingdom, you can find a way to sell everything you have. You want to justify uh, uh, whatever it is you want to justify, you can make a half-truth out of this. There's a lot of pages here. There's, uh, this, this, uh, I got 1,140 pages of really small text in four columns. I can dive right into here and say, well, the, the Bible says this, and only give you half the truth. And I can make my entire foundation of my life on a half truth. It'll ruin your life. It'll ruin your life. You want to ruin your life? Just kind of have a passing understanding of scriptures, a passing acquaintance with it. Just believe because it's printed on a Christian t-shirt, or it sounds like something that meets your current values right now, it must be true. Half truths will ruin your life. Paul says to uh, his protege Timothy in 1 Timothy or 2 Timothy chapter 4 says in the presence of God in Christ Jesus who will judge the living and the dead <laughs> don't think God's going to judge anybody I'm just reading it to you and in view of his appearing and his kingdom I give you this charge preach the word be prepared in season and out of season listen correct rebuke and encourage with great patience and careful instruction for the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine listen to this instead to suit their own desires they'll gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear they'll turn their ears away from truth and turn aside to myths half truths half truths all over the place Say, hey, this has got to be okay because I want to do this. This has got to be all right because I like this. And it's half of the truth. And so we try to make the Bible say whatever we want it to say. Actually, if you back up, uh, stay with me back there. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, 
right before this, Paul's instructing, he's like, as for you, you have to continue in what you've learned and have been convinced of because you know those from who you learned it. He's like, take a look at everybody that you learned it from and keep walking in that. How from infancy you've known, listen, the Holy Scripture. When have you known them? From infancy. You've known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus, because all Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. He says, you got to know the Word of God because it's useful to help you and prepare you. Why? So that you're equipped to deal with what you face in life. Yet we fight over, I don't have time to get into the word of God. It's 1,100 pages, Pastor Mike. And so we have a passing relationship with the word. You know, I heard uh, uh, one speaker that I have a great relationship with talk about how all his greatest mentors are in the Bible. How the people who he's modeled and shaped his life after are all people that he knew from the scriptures. How, how when avoiding danger, he remembers Joseph running from Potiphar's wife and having to stand for what he believes. And he remembers Daniel in the lion's den. When he's dealing with grumpy people, he remembers Moses and in the desert. And he's formed his view of the world. How? Through the word. Because that's where he finds the source of truth. He says, this is how God functions. This is how the follower of God functions. And so my question to you is, as you're becoming mature, is what is your relationship with his word like? Is it personal? Is it intimate? Are you going deep? Are you learning? Are you growing? Um, I'm going to jump way ahead. Hebrews chapter five. The author of Hebrews, many believe it's Paul, but we just know it was written and it's in the word. Paul uses this language a lot of times, especially in second Corinthians, but he says, in fact, Though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. Woo! He says, some of you should now be in the teaching zone. You've been in a relationship following God long enough that you should be prepared to start sharing that information because of the personal nature of your relationship with God. And because you have an understanding of the word of God, you should be in teaching mode, but you need the elementary truths all over again. Listen to this. You need milk, not solid food. And all throughout the, the, the narrative of, of the, especially the New Testament, Paul presses into this and he says, listen, when you get started, it's okay if you only need milk. It's okay if when you get started, you don't have an understanding of the grasp and the scope of the word of God and the nature of God. You just gotta start somewhere. And let's get you some milk. Let's get you a little bit of nutrients, a little bit of sustenance. Let's get you understanding a little bit about the nature of God. But you can't stay right there. Eventually, you're gonna need to start consuming some meat and growing. You need that level of protein. And can I make a really gross illustration so that you never forget this? It is weird when things nurse for too long. Whatever too long is for you. I'm not judging. I'm just saying, eventually it gets kind of weird. If you've been nursing for too long. And that's what this author is communicating. He's like, listen, you should be now moving on to meet. You should be now getting into the word of God, understanding the nature of God, the story of God, the narrative of God, and having a, not only a personal relationship with God, but your mind should be activated and growing. You should be becoming more like him, thinking like him, understanding how to phrase what's happening in the world through his word. 
And if you're still nursing and you've been walking with God for a long time, that's kind of weird. It's unnatural after a while. And from the outside looking in, we're going, what are you doing here? You've been, you've been around the things of God for a long time. This is, you know, this is, <laughs> these is, uh, moms will know that these are puffs, right? You're a step past, maybe Cheerios. Everyone knows what Cheerios are. These are like Cheerios, right? You're at least a step past milk. You're on to Cheerios now, but, but you should at least be moving forward. And now all of a sudden you got some mashed up oatmeal stuff and we're getting some fruit in there and we're moving forward. This is why it's so important that you have some method of how you get into the word. You have some plan, some strategy. You know, we do life journaling here and we do, uh, I, 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 listen, there's so many ways to do it. You have to pick a strategy and have a daily time in the word of God, period, or you're not going to get mature. I don't know what else to tell you. You're not going to, now you're like, but Pastor Mark, you don't understand. I don't understand what I'm reading. I only understand like 4% of what I've read. Awesome. Start with that 4%. You're eating puffs and Cheerios. That's way better than just letting me nurse you. <laughs> now it's over. <laughs> We've crossed the line. Come back. I want that for you, though. <laughs> Have some puffs and Cheerios. And you know what's awesome? The next time you come around and read that, you might be, wow, because of what I've read, I'm at like 10%. There's some fruit mashed into this now. And the next time you come through, you might be 25% and 30% and 50%. And pretty soon, you know, if you hit 100%, come teach me. But you have to have a, a committed daily time with God in his word, or you will be stunted in your growth. And I'm not, I'm not legalistically saying it has to look like any particular thing. I'm just saying it has to be a regular part of your life if you want to grow you got to break out of whatever the constraints are that aren't allowing you to get into the presence of God and make room for it. And if you did that, you would see, just like what happens in an infant that starts getting different foods, the, <laughs> I don't know how far to take the mess. The mess gets different, but the results get different also, and the growth gets different, and maturity happens. And that's how you start becoming real mature. We've got to get off the elementary truths. <laughs> Verse 13, anyone who lives on milk being still an infant, it's not acquainted with the teachings about righteousness, but solid food is for the mature who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. That's what I want for you. That's maturity. And that's the potential you have as you get into the word of God. Now, the word of God without relationship with God is going to not help you. You're going to have a bunch of just snapshots. I mean, it might be practical and pragmatic. It might get you started, but it, it, it might be helpful. But the context of knowing and following Jesus just sets the tone for all of that for you. That's why last week we started with this idea that spiritual intimacy, it's focusing on your heart. And if you haven't taken steps to say, God, I trust you with my heart, then working on your head is not going to solve all that for you. But biblical knowledge focuses on your head. God, I want to walk with you. I want to walk towards you. So help me learn to think like you and become like you and know you. That's what this book does. You know, it's funny because I was thinking about what my assignment is week after week to come here and 
share with you guys. And really all my assignment is, is this. I want to take this, right? I want to consume it. And then I want to encourage you to consume it so that you can go and do it. And I believe that when you do it, it'll change your life. It'll change your life. And so this is your pastor, however you see me, pleading with you. You have a resource right here that is so incredible for your life. It's word after word after word of the heart and the nature of God. There's promises in here for you that are greater than you would even know if you never got in there. It's kind of like this. Let me give you just a silly analogy. If Bill Gates passed away and he had left a will, but it was long and complicated, and so his kids were like, ah, I don't care. And they never read it. And so they never got any of the things that they were entitled to because of not wanting to get into the work of reading his will. You would look at that person and go, you fool. There's so much you're entitled to. And that's just worldly wealth. Here's the creator of the universe saying, here are the promises for my kids and the nature of how, how, how what I have for you. And, and we're like, ah, it's kind of messy and hard to read. And I don't really get into it that much. It's not, you know, it's not on the, you know, my current list of top 10 reads. And I'm going, are you kidding me? There's so many promises in there for you. There's so much God has for you. And, and you're, you're entitled to all of that. And you're missing it because you just don't even know you're entitled to it. Why wouldn't you want that? Some of you are like, that's scary, Pastor Mike. I haven't ever even gone on that journey before. Well, I told you I'm going to plead with you for the next several weeks. Let's start with Rooted. We're going to launch into just 10 weeks of conversation and the nature of the Bible and helping you get started. Start with that. Some of you, that, that sign-up went by and you're like, eh. And you, before you leave, need to go find it and say, okay, I'll give it a shot. Let's go on that journey. Let's start developing past the milk phase, okay? <laughs> I, so many bad nursing analogies in my head that I just have to move away from so we can land the plane. But, but you're with me. I want you to eat steak, even if you're fasting right now. It's hard to talk about steak this much. Holy moly. Would you stand with me? I just want to celebrate this reality. If you take a step towards Jesus and trust him to get into the word, there are so many of his promises that have the potential to be unleashed in your life. It could literally change your life. Not only could it change your life, it could change the life of those people around you in your closest circle. It could change everything. So this morning, God, I'm just excited. I'm excited for what could be and what will be as we just take steps to trust you and follow you because of your word. And we don't want to be deceived just because someone says something in a way that sounds convincing. We want to know your voice and trust your voice. We want the courage to stand. Even if someone says something that sounds very convincing, we can say, but that's not the voice of my father. And we don't want to be stuck in infancy and, and infant. That's weird. We got to move towards maturity. And, and sometimes that requires a, a little pain and there's growing pains and there's some ache and there's some mess. But we'll take that over remaining in the, some infantile state. That would just not make any sense at all. And so we want to be the kind of mighty warriors that we sang about that, that, that are growing in power and in strength and able to tell truth from fiction and just believe in the promises of God. That's who we want to be. So that's the cry of our heart. We love you. 
and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.